today. That, I don't know if y'all know this, but we got some rain. How are you today? That's a good thing. That's a very, very, very good thing. Great to have y'all with us today. You know, I was, I can't remember if I was in the eighth grade or maybe the ninth when I was awakened one Sunday morning by my mom with the news that a close family friend of ours had been in a car accident overnight. Now, thankfully, no one was hurt or injured at all in this wreck, but the circumstances of her car accident were, let's just say, very, very disconcerting to me. You see, this friend of our family's was my age, and because we did not yet have our driver's license, she was not legally supposed to be driving when she snuck her parents' car out in the wee hours of the morning one night. And on this joy ride through the streets of Houston, the Houston humidity kind of conspired with the air conditioning in this 1979 Oldsmobile 98 to fog up the windshield. And because our friend was a novice driver, she wasn't familiar with the windshield wiper controls. Are they on the turn signal? Are they on the dashboard under the steering wheel? We just didn't know. And like I said, I, I was not in the car when this happened. But she just kind of started to reach out the window of the Oldsmobile 98 and started kind of clearing a place for her to see because she couldn't get the windshield wipers to work. And when she was preoccupied with clearing a place to see, she failed to see an oncoming car that was parked <laughs> that she just squarely slammed into the rear end of. And as I said, fortunately and thankfully, no one was hurt or injured. But the details were very disconcerting to me because I may or may not have participated in some similar shenanigans on other nights, though I was not present on the night in question. But I think that story is something that every single one of us can connect with for this reason. We all know the fact that distractions disrupt. My friend driving through the streets of Houston was distracted trying to clear off a spot to see. And ironically, in trying to create a spot to see, couldn't see the car she ended up rear-ending. Distractions disrupt. Last week, as a church, we launched this series, Keep Calm and Family On. And we established the fact that for our lives personally, as well as for our families, God has a vision, that there is a God-given revelation of what he wants to accomplish in your family through your family. Rooted in the book of Proverbs chapter 29, you'll remember Proverbs 29, where there is no vision, the people perish, but he that keepeth the law, happy is he. Now, of course, we're going to the King James Version, but that word vision is best translated in our contemporary English as a revelation from God that God wants to reveal to you like he wants to reveal to me what he wants to do in our lives and through our lives. And I don't think I'm taking too much language license with that original King James Version to say, while it is true that where there is no vision, the people perish, the flip side of that is also equally true. Where there is a vision... The people flourish. 
Where there is a vision, the people flourish. Tell your neighbor, that's a fact, Jack. Now, we're not going to do that a lot throughout this message this morning, but we're going to do it a few times. And because y'all are here at the 11 o'clock service, you all, I know, I know, you slept well, you've been properly caffeinated. I'm going to need you to help a pastor out a little bit, all right? So when, we, when I engage you a little bit, I want, I want you to help me out a little bit strong. Now, tell your neighbor like you mean it and like you really care about them. That's the fact, Jack. Where there is no vision the people perish. Where there is a vision, the people flourish. But distractions disrupt. We we see this in the business world when companies kind of overreach and go beyond their core competencies as a business and they spread their resources and their people too thin. Or we've seen it on sports teams that kind of coddle superstar divas at the expense of the team culture and ultimately winnings. And those kind of distractions disrupt. But I would suggest to you this morning that those are really just high altitude versions of what we know to be true in our own lives, that in our lives, in our families and homes, distractions disrupt, that that you and I live in a distraction rich environment. We as as a country, as a culture are drowning in distractions and these distractions have some really far reaching implications. Dr. Brene Brown is a professor at the University of Houston and the author of a phenomenal book called Daring Greatly. And in her book, Daring Greatly, Dr. Brown identifies some of the consequences, some of the results of our obsession with distractions. This is what Dr. Brown writes. She says, Americans today are more debt-ridden, obese, medicated, and addicted than we have ever been. And the leading cause of accidental death in the United States? Drug overdoses. In fact, more people die from prescription drug overdoses than from heroin, cocaine, and methamphetamine drug use combined. Even more alarming is the estimate that less than 5% of those who died from prescription drug overdoses obtained their drugs from the folks that we normally think of as street corner drug dealers. Dr. Brown goes on to write, she says that the dealers today are more likely to be parents, relatives, friends, and physicians. Clearly, there's a problem. We're desperate to feel less or more of something, to make something go away, or to have more of something else. I think Dr. Brown puts an incredibly fine and accurate point on the problem of distractions. At the same time, sociologists are continuously encountering a new phenomenon in our families that they labeled the parent time trap. And in this phenomenon, parents who work outside the home are finding the more they work outside the home, the more hectic home becomes. Do not raise your hands if you identify with this phenomenon. It's kind of just there. But the real danger of this is that the more hectic home becomes, the more these parents want to go to work. And so in these homes, work has become home and home has become work. We are a distracted people. Now, that's the bad news. The good news 
is that life does not have to be lived that way. We do not have to live distracted and drowning in those distractions. The good news of Jesus Christ, as a matter of fact, speaks directly to the subject of distractions. Go back to last week's message and kind of the idea that there's a vision God has for you, God has for me. The way that this plays itself out in our lives, the way that it becomes real Monday through Saturday and not just something cute that we talked about on Sunday morning, is in our priorities. I want to suggest to you this morning that your vision will drive your priorities. Vision drives your priorities. Whatever you are called to, whatever you are all about, that will determine your priorities. It will determine my priorities. Now, when we talk about priorities, you need to understand something right at the very jump this morning. This is a tough sermon. It is. It's a hard sermon. For the record, it's a hard sermon to preach because I got this sermon preached to me before I showed up here this morning. This is really, really tough to make work. It's tough to receive because in order to receive this sermon, we have to be willing to step back and say, you know what? At least part of what we have been doing is broken. Part of what we have been doing is not working. Last week, I asked you to raise your hand if anybody in this room had felt stressed or anxious or kind of frenzied and chaotic in the last couple of weeks, and it was almost unanimous, myself included. But today, I think God has something really, really powerful for anybody in this room who will actually choose to use it who will actually choose to do the work for a husband and wife to sit down across the table without the kids and say, you know what? We need to reorder. We want to reorient our lives. Now, here's one of the challenges with priorities. Matter of fact, everybody take out your program that you got when you came in. looks like this. Keep calm and family on. And I want you to open it up to the notes page that's right inside. And just down the right-hand side, just make you a little list. I don't know, four or five six deep because here's what we typically do here's what i typically do when i start thinking about priorities i'll come over here and i'll, I'll start to make a list and since we're in church we'll put god number one come on that was funny you should have laughed at that y'all are tense this morning just cool out it's going to be great i promise you this is this is liberating so we'll say god's number one okay now i think most of us would at least intellectually go, yeah, okay, that makes sense. I don't really know how to live that out, but I'll go with it for now. Then we'll do number two. The sermon is keep calm, family on, so I'll say family's number two, blah, blah, blah. Okay, then there's three. Okay, work. I have to work. We have to eat. Or if you're a student, how many of y'all are students? You're still in school right now. You're not right now, but this year. Okay, for you, work is school. That's your job. I hate to tell you that, but that's just a fact. So that's the fact, Jack. Four, what, whatever, what, do you, what would you put as next? Fr okay, great, friends, I like that. Friends are friends forever, if the Lord's the Lord of them. Five, breakfast tacos. Six, um, health. Health is good, we'll put health down which breakfast tacos helps. 
health. Okay, so, so we've got this list. Now here's my challenge. I don't know if you can identify with this or if you connect with this. Whenever I make the list, I'm either making the list or I go back and look at it and I start messing with the list. You know what I'm talking about? I say, okay, I know God should be number one, but I'm not going to spend, you know, 15 hours a day at church and in prayer and witnessing and reading my Bible. So I, I get it, but what does that really look like? So a lot of times we'll get really sophisticated and rather than a list, we'll do a graph. We'll, we'll make some of you accountants and engineer types in here. You'll kind of go, you go, give me a pie chart and we'll give God the biggest piece because he's God and well, that's cool. The next biggest piece we'll give to breakfast tacos. <laughs> then there's family. I, okay, the fam. I got the fam. That's cool. Um, health. Got to go to Town Lake. Health. Boom. And, and whatever else the case might be. So we, so we make this pie. And God's got the biggest slice, so, so everything else should be fine. But then I, after I've messed with the list a little bit, fact of the matter is, left to my own devices on, on a just day in and day out basis, if I'm not making the list or if I'm not messing with the list, I'm messing up the list. How many of you know what it's like to mess up your priorities? And we have a quorum. Okay, so that, that's, just, that's just part of the deal. Here's where theology matters. Here's where the gospel of Jesus Christ actually works. Now remember, I've said this before, the only good theology works. If it, if it doesn't work, it's not good theology. It's just kind of, you know, how many angels could dance on the head of a pen? You know, we have our little clove cigarette or whatever and our espresso. But I want to show you where theology works. It's in Colossians chapter number one. In Colossians chapter one, the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is describing the person and the character of Jesus. And he's helping this young church at Colossae understand who Jesus is and therefore how life works. And in Colossians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul writes this. Now, we're going to get to some, to some words that are highlighted on the screen. I want you to read those words out loud with passion and caffeinated enthusiasm. All right? All right? Okay, thank you so much. <clears throat> Check this out. Paul, inspired by God, writing about Jesus. For in him, Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. Read this with me. All things have been created through him and for him. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, the resurrection. So that, read it with me, in everything he might have the supremacy. Whoa. Now, check this out. All things have been created through him and for him. That means that Jesus is the agent of creation. If you go all the way back to the beginning, Genesis 1-1, right after table of contents, Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created. Jesus was there. 
That's why in John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was there at the beginning. Now, there was clearly His earthly ministry that about 33-year period, about 2,000 years ago when He was one of us here on the earth. But He has always been. That's what it means to be eternal. He had no beginning. He is eternal. He has no end. Fries a circuit in my brain. But it's true. I don't understand how it gets there, but it's real. Jesus is the agent of creation. All things are created by him. And then what does it say also? They're created through him and for him. So everything that has been created is created for the glorification and the honor of Jesus. That's you. That's me. That's God's creation. Everything was designed to reflect the character of the Creator. You you see that in creation. So everything is created to glorify Jesus. Why? Down in verse 18. So that in everything He might have the supremacy. So in everything, Jesus has supremacy. The word supremacy means He is Lord. Capital L-O-R-D. He is supreme. He is sovereign. In Spanish, we would say el jefe. He is the boss. Numero uno. So in that respect, you kind of go, okay, he is supreme. But what does it say? In everything, Jesus has supremacy. So if you just put him right here, what about two through whatever comes next? Wait a minute. I've got God up here. He's number one. But the Bible says, theologically, Jesus is supreme in my family. Jesus is supreme in my work or my school. Students, how many of y'all, let me ask, let me just see a show of hands. How many of y'all students have a, have a teacher who's unreasonable or crazy? Let me just see a show of hands. Okay. Listen, I get it. You know what? I'm going to tell you something. He or she won't be your last. They're not going to be. Those of you who are in the workplace, how many of you have a boss who is unreasonable or crazy? Can I just see a show of hands? If you're sitting next to him, don't raise your hand. But I'm just saying, in every situation, the supremacy of Christ, the sovereignty, the hefeness of Jesus is supreme in everything. So students, when you go to school tomorrow and you're dealing with that unreasonable teacher, The gospel matters there. The reality of Jesus affects how you respond to that unreasonable teacher. The gospel affects how you respond to your parents expecting or asking of you something that you don't completely understand. In everything, he might have the supremacy. In everything. So, now all of a sudden, The list is obsolete. Matter of fact, on your notes page right there, here's what I want you to do. Just take an X and go through the list. Take an X and go through the list because the list is now obsolete. In all things, he has the supremacy. Now we start to think about the pie. I like what... Philip Biles, who used to be our children's pastor, Philip said something really, really wise, among other things. 
He said that it's not that we give God a piece of the pie of our life. Rather, it is that God is the crust that holds our lives together. He is in every piece of our lives. Now you'll notice if you're paying attention in first Colossians, I'm sorry, Colossians chapter one, do not look for second Colossians in the Bible. It does not exist. But in Colossians one, I've read verses 16 and 18 and I skipped verse 17. And I did that very, very deliberately. Look at what it says in verse 17. Talking about Jesus again. He is before all things. Read the highlighted words with me. And in him, all things hold together. Do you remember when I asked how many of you felt anxious or stressed out in the last couple of weeks? I know what that feels like, just for the record. And it feels like you're having trouble, what? Holding it all together. That's because you weren't designed. I wasn't designed to hold it all together. Christ holds it all together. In Him, all things hold together. Prior to 16 years ago, my spiritual challenges in life were very run-of-the-mill, I think, for most people. But once I became the pastor of Lake Hills Church, the number one spiritual challenge of my life for 16 years has been and continues to this day to be stress and anxiety. That's my own challenge. But I've noticed something when that challenge becomes a little bit overbearing. Every time that I start to get stressed out, every time that I get genuinely anxious or maybe wrapped around the axle, I've noticed that I've taken my eyes off of Christ. I've noticed in my life when I get anxious, I've begun to imagine a future without the supreme authority of Jesus weighing in, whether it be in the church, in marriage, as a dad, as a guy. Anxiety is ultimately a spiritual issue. Now, let me say this very, very clearly. I recognize that anxiety many times can be a very real clinical issue. And I, and I do not in any way want to undersell that reality because it's there. But I do know this. The gospel of Jesus Christ is greater than any anxiety you experience. Jesus himself is greater than any stress you walked in the door carrying this morning. This is what he does. This is who he is. He is our peace. And specifically when we're talking about priorities, because in him all things hold together, the list goes away. What I'm saying is this, priorities are not a matter of a God-first list. Priorities are a matter of a God-filled life. Priorities are not a matter of a God-first list. Priorities are a matter of a God-filled life. Allowing Jesus Christ to pervade every part of who you are. I had lunch about six months ago with a very, very close friend of mine. This guy's a great guy. And over the course of this lunch, we kind of just caught up a little bit. There was a couple of moments, there were a couple of moments where he kind of 
pushed me on a couple of things and I kind of pushed back and pushed him on a couple of other things. And it was just one of those meals that, that just was awesome. I, I walked away from it charged up spiritually and personally and relation everything. He's just one of those guys. And over the course of our meal, he was sharing with me a challenge that a friend of his had gone through. And we talked about this. And as I was walking out, I thought, man, how blessed am I to have this guy as a friend in my life? And I started thinking about him personally. I thought, you know, how many men do I know who are genuinely growing in their faith day in and day out, personally, beyond Sunday morning? How many of those guys are really, truly doing a great job as a husband? I mean, I don't mean that they would say they're doing a good job. I mean their wives would say they're doing a good job. ruh and of those, they're doing a great job parenting. I mean, they're, they're really and truly equipping their kids. They're arming their kids to go out into the world and one day move out and buy their own food. Sooner rather than later. And at the same time they're doing all three of those things, these guys are working really, really hard. I mean, they're, they're doing a good job at work. I don't mean they're necessarily becoming multi-squillionaires, but they're they're a blessing to their employer or to their coworkers, the people that they do business with go, man, I'm glad that guy's in my business or in my line of work. And then they're also taking care of their bodies and their health, what God's given them physically, and they're in, they're in decent shape. How many men do you know who are doing all five of those things, Mac Richard? And I'm telling you, as I made that list in my mind, I got tired. So I think, if you're doing all five of those things, what else do you have time for? You, you don't have, I mean, you don't have time to get in trouble. Students, how many of y'all know that, that the worst trouble you ever get in is when you're bored? <laughs> so that was a little snicker of recognition right there throughout the crowd. It's true. Women. How many of you are taking care of those five? If you're doing those things really well, what else do you have time for? Because in Him, all things hold together. In Him, the vision becomes very, very clear. And the clutter kind of starts to fall by the wayside. I think a lot of times our lives just get cluttered, cluttered, clutter here, clutter there, clutter everywhere, everywhere, clutter, clutter is just a bad word, say clutter, 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 I mean you can't even smile when you say clutter, <laughs> distractions disrupt the vision God has for your life, the vision that he has for my life. So what do you do? Number one, center your life in Christ. Center your life in Christ. Just whatever you do, make it about Him. Whatever it is, center your life in Christ. Psalm chapter 92 says this, Those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. 
There's that word flourishing again. Flourish. They shall still bear fruit in old age. They shall be fresh and flourishing. There it is again, flourishing. To declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. Center your life in Christ. That means that you anchor every part of who you are in what matters to Christ. That's your priority. Your family. The church. The bride of Christ. Now for some of you, just the fact that you walked in the door today is a monster step forward spiritually. You, you, you cleared some enormous hurdles, maybe spiritually, maybe emotionally, maybe family-wise, to get here. But it's time to, for a lot of us, take it to the next level and to plant in the house of the Lord, to really and truly connect into what God's doing, to keep your kids connected in the house. You know, at our 930 service, you know who the first people in the house are? Our high school students. Our high school students, most of whom are serving during this hour in our middle school ministry. They're the first ones here. Check this out. High, high school was a great time in life for me. I mean, high school is where you learn the art of sleeping late. Remember? It's like you go, when you wake up, and you go, man, it's noon. Why am I up so early? But on Sunday morning, high school kids are the first one in here at the early service. And guess what? They're on time. It's a priority to them. They're planted in the house. Their families are keeping them, making sure they stay connected into the house so that they flourish in old age. Now there are some phenomenal phenomenal parachurch ministries that are out there, I would suggest to you the vast majority of parachurch ministries would have never been necessary if the church had been doing its job. So plant in the house. Stay connected in order to flourish. People say, well, if our, if our kids don't, you know, participate in that extracurricular or travel with this soccer team, listen, they're going to be left out. Listen, that's okay. If you teach your kids that they can survive being left out, they will survive being left out. You see, your kids being left out is not a kid problem. That's a you problem. You're going back to your own past, what it was like when you were in high school. <laughs> Listen, scariest moment of my life was my freshman year in high school, first day of class at Robert E. Lee High School. I'd gone to this little sheltered, great Christian private school. Everybody knew Mac and his parents, and it was great. And it, I, I, All of a sudden, I go to this big, bad 5A high school. I knew five people on campus. Now, through the first three periods of the day, it was no problem. I'd go to classroom. They'd call roll, Thomas Richard. It's Mac Richard, blah, blah, blah. So we'd do the deal. <laughs> then the bell rang for lunch. And I walked into the cafeteria, and there was an ocean of faces I didn't recognize. And I just stood there shell-shocked. I was like, what do I do? I'm going to just stand over there by myself. All of a sudden, a friend of mine that I knew who was a senior, in the grace of God, walked by. He goes, Matt, come on, you're eating with me. Yes, sir. Okay, come on. 
I mean, I'd have followed him on cut glass and hot coals. I didn't care where he was going. But being left out ain't the end of the world. As a matter of fact, a lot of the stuff in high school and in college, you want your kids left out of. So show them that it's okay. Show them that the things of God to center their life in Christ and in the bride and the body of Christ is where they learn to flourish. Again, parachurch things, fine, that's great. But they go by the wayside when they go to college or they graduate and leave home. It's the church that survives eternity. Show them the value of that. Make that a priority in your home. Center your life in Christ. Number two, do your work in Christ. Do your work in Christ. Now, do not raise your hands. But in a room with this many people, or maybe right now at downtown at Brazos Hall in our downtown campus, I know there are a number of people who have a job that you don't dig. Don't raise your hand. I, I personally love what I get to do. I love my calling. I'm passionate about it. Every day is a brand new day. Now, sometimes there are parts of my job that are harder than others. There's some things I don't like. But overall, I love what I get to do. But whatever you do, do your work in Christ. It's an expression. It's an opportunity to worship. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23 says, Work willingly at whatever you do, as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Do your work in Christ. If you're an insurance person, you sell insurance like you're selling insurance for Christ. If you're a lawyer, what? Yes. You attorney for Christ. If you're a teacher, if you're a pastor, if you're a ditch digger, if you're a stay-at-home mom, a stay-at-home dad, do your work in Christ. If you go to school, do your work in Christ. Your homework ain't just something to get out of. It's an opportunity to worship. Do your work in Christ for that perspective. Because He holds all things together. And then number three, this is fun. Rest in Christ. Rest in Christ. Look at your neighbor and with passion and caffeinated enthusiasm, like you really care about them. I want you to look at them and smile and tell them, get you some rest. <laughs> Do you understand that rest is a gift of God and a command of God. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy, set apart, different. Rest in Christ. When you discipline rest into your week, into your life, you work better. When I decide on Wednesday or Thursday, you know what? Friday's my day off. I'm not where I want to be on the sermon. I've got a couple more phone calls to make. Sabbath is a command. I'm going to Sabbath on Friday. 
then Wednesday and Thursday get a lot more efficient. Wednesday and Thursday, I get a lot more disciplined with my time. Rest in Christ. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is one of the more well-known verses of the New Testament, particularly for folks that are kind of veterans of the faith. If you've been around any amount of time, you've probably heard this, primarily used in a doctrinal reference. And again, it, doctrine matters. But doctrine matters so that it works. And, and I want to read Ephesians 2, 8, 9 and then take it a little step further. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says this, It is by grace, that means undeserved blessing, undeserved favor from God. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from, your, this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Read this with me. Not by works so that no one can boast. So that no one can boast. Now, doctrinally, what that means is that salvation, the forgiveness of your sins, is a gift from God. You can't earn it. Some of you go, well, I'm a pretty good guy. I try to be a sweet girl. That's cool. Be a good guy. Be a sweet girl. But just understand, that's not going to get you to heaven. Being a good guy is not a ticket to ride. Salvation is by grace through faith. Grace is the initiative of God. Not by works. Not by works. Not by works. There's nothing you can do to earn the forgiveness of God. Nothing. Now, this flies in the face of our Puritan background. I mean, we, we, we've, we kind of still inherit some of that Puritan work ethic, which some of which is good. But the dark side of the Puritan work ethic is that whatever blessings in life we enjoy, it's because of what we have done. We have earned those blessings. Now, we are absolutely to work hard, to use the gifts and the talents God's given us, but not in order to earn God's favor. We use our talents and our gifts. We work hard in response to God's favor. God's favor was first. Grace is the initiative of God. So it's not by work. So everybody just kind of go, oh, just take a deep breath. Whew. Doesn't that feel good? Some of you are the most relaxed you've been in months just because you took that deep breath. But look at what happens in verse 14 through 16. And again, read these highlighted words with me. Verse 14. For he himself is our peace. Let's do that again. For he himself is our peace. Who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and its regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. Thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile them, both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. That's good theology. That is good, good doctrine right there. And you know why it's good? Because it works. It works. 
because of what Christ did on the cross, we find rest in him. He is our peace. He is our peace. He is our peace. Now to get there, sometimes it may require some Christian counseling. It might. And just for the record, I am a massive fan of Christian counseling. It's a great tool. It's a great gift. But it needs to be Christ-centered. It needs to be biblically based in the hands of somebody who knows what they're doing. Be careful about who you go to for counsel, for guidance. How many of y'all took a psychology class in college? Let me just see a show of hands. Do you remember the people in that class with you? You really want to go to them for life advice? Now, some of them, maybe. But you need to be careful. But counseling's a great thing. It's a gift. And I've shared this before. When I was in the fifth grade, I broke my leg one day before school. We were playing keep away out on the lawn before the bell rang. And I had the ball, and I was running at a breakneck speed just because that's how I roll. And I jumped up to throw the ball to get rid of it. And when I jumped, this guy slid to try to trip me. And when I landed, his foot came in and hit my leg about four inches. I know, I heard it. About four inches above the ankle. Pop! Both bones in my lower leg broke all the way through. And, whoo, I went down. Now, in the fifth grade, I knew something was bad wrong. I knew that my leg was not working the way that it was supposed to. Now, in that moment, do I just kind of get up and go, shake it off. Let's kind of run it off and everything will be okay. <laughs> no. I went to the doctor. I, I went to the doctor and had a trained professional set the bones so that they would heal well. Why is it that we think when something breaks relationally or emotionally or psychologically that we don't need help getting it set? Blows my mind that in 2013, some people still attach a stigma to counseling. Now, I don't think you ought to be in counseling until Jesus comes back. But sometimes you need some help. You need some some strategies. You need some tools at your disposal to get better. To get out of the rut that you may be in. In order to rest in Christ. This is the gospel. This is where doctrine and theology begin to walk around in real, real shoes. In real real lives. And it starts and it's sustained and it ends in Christ. In what He did on the cross. Because on the cross, He brought together the old way with the new way to reconcile them. The old way where we tried to do it all on our own. And the new way where God had accomplished it for us in Christ. And because on the cross, we find our rest. Because Jesus is enough. 
Jesus is enough. When I get anxious, when I get unrestful, it's because there's not enough of something in my life. But when I'm at peace, when I rest in Christ, it's because He is enough. And so as a dad, I want to teach Emily and Joseph how to center their lives in Christ. Not my approval, in Christ. Not in whether or not they fit in at school or they get accepted into that group or that clique or they get to make that soccer travel team, but in Christ. Now let me be very clear. I'm a fan of athletics. I think extracurricular activities are great. Clearly I'm a fan of athletics. Look at me. You don't get shoulders like this by just wishing them into existence. But your children's elementary and middle school athletics are not more important than their spiritual grounding in the things of God. And you make that call because you are the parent. You are the parent. You decide to center your family in Christ. That is how you keep calm and family on. But what's true of our families is also true of us individually. It's true of us individually that we have to rest in Him. That we have to recognize his supremacy in everything in our lives. Will you bow your heads with me for just a moment? We've covered a lot of ground today. And it's important. But nothing more important than the supremacy of Christ in your life personally, in my life personally. To decide that He is enough. If you're here today and you've never stepped into that enoughness, that relationship with Christ, as a church, we want to invite you to do it right now. doesn't take an elaborate ceremony. It just takes a willing heart to give him supremacy in all things. If you've never done that personally and definitively, then I want to invite you to pray right now. Just right where you are. Silently. Just talk to him and just silently call out. He's listening. Just silently pray and say, Jesus, I need you. I need you. And so right here, right now, I give you my life. I ask you, I invite you to be supreme over everything once and for all. 
Jesus, I give you my life. Responding to your grace. And I pray this prayer in your name. With every head bowed and every eye closed for just a moment, I want to ask you to join me in protecting this moment, everyone. But if that was your prayer and you meant it for the first time in your life, I want to ask you if you would just quietly but unmistakably, if you would just raise your hand up over your head for just a moment, just raise your hand and hold it up there for just a moment. Because this is the most important moment in your life. And it's a moment that deserves to be marked, to be celebrated. And as a church, we want to help you with that celebration and that marking. We want to just give you a gift real quickly, just... It's just for you. There's, there's a Bible in there that's yours to keep. But also, we want to be a family of faith for you. We want to help with your next moment in faith. And so you'll notice, if you will, just open that box up. There's a little gift in there. We would just ask you to take the card out right now. And if you would, just fill that card out so that we can begin the process of being a family of faith for you. If you just fill that out, you can you can either put it in the offering bag when it comes by you, or when our service ends in just a few minutes, you can, when you walk out these doors to your right, to my left, there's a little blue awning out there underneath the porch. And just hand that card to a real person. Just to make a connection briefly as you begin this journey of faith with us. As a church, there's nothing more important to us. The reason we're here as a church is to grow the community of Christ one life at a time. And so as a church, we celebrate that with you. We want to honor and mark this moment. We put our hands together and tell you, welcome home. That's why we're here.